Want to see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. That's talkwithfrancesca.com. You are listening to AM 1510 WMEX in Boston and the Legends WNBP in Newburyport. This show is sponsored by Terramia in the North End, the absolute best place, the only place to get Italian food in Boston. My favorite. Not to mention that... Carla's sons, Rob and Dave Gomez, are uh, starting a show. Well, actually, they just started a show last week called Fantasy Football with Rob and Dave Gomez. So it is on Saturdays at 4 p.m., and it is a must, 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 must listen to. All right. With the movie release of Black Mass, the pop culture mythification of James Whitey Bulger is complete. It's a process that started Four decades ago in Southie, that is obviously South Boston, and it gained velocity through the years of Life on the Lamb and finally slammed through the barrier with Whitey Bulge's arrest and his trial. It was only a matter of time before the movie came out, and this is what we do as a culture. That's why today on Talk with Francesca, I have joined with me in the studio T.J. English, who has recently published Where the Bodies Were Buried. Oof. Thank you for joining me, T.J., and welcome to Thank the you. show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So it's Whitey Bulger, Whitey Bulger, Whitey Bulger. It's so sad to me. It, it, so why did you write a book about the trial? Well, you know, I didn't I didn't want to initially. Um, I've written a number of crime books. So when Bulger was apprehended, my agent uh, approached me about it. And I, I've written about the Bulger story quite a bit over the years. I wrote, mm-hmm. in fact, one of the books that I wrote called Paddywhack, which is a history of the Irish-American gangster in the United States, um, was one of the books that Bulger had in his possession when he was apprehended in California, and they brought him they brought him in uh, because he's mentioned in that book. He was a big reader of books in which he was featured. Um, so I had written. So he ab- loved to read about himself. Yes, he did. Quite the narcissist, at least, yes. right? Um, so I'd written about the subject a lot, and there's been many books. I didn't really think one was needed. Uh, then the trial started to take shape, and it occurred to me that. Uh, the way the trial was being structured, that a huge part of the Bulger story was being sort of deliberately excised from the trial. And the prosecutors were doing everything within their power to make sure that this narrative didn't stray beyond Bulger into the larger framework of how Bulger ever got into the position of power that he got into. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinating to me. And that's part of the story that I think has been given short shrift and hasn't really been adequately explored. And part of it is because of what you say, the cult of Bulger, I call it, the, Mm. the fascination people have with the personality of Whitey, the character of Whitey, this idea that he's some kind of master manipulator. But if you really look at it, the the corruption and the relationships between the criminals and law enforcement that have existed in this area since the 1960s, at least, mm-hmm. when the top echelon informant program was first instituted on a federal level by the FBI. If you look at that and you look at the whole chessboard, so to speak, Whitey Bulger is a player in this story. 
But Whitey Bulger is not the only player in this story. And in fact, if you want to understand how Whitey Bulger got into power, you have to set Whitey Bulger aside and look at the larger picture of the what I call the world that made him or the world that helped create him. So let's do that. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear that's that's that that starts back in the 1960s with a gangster by the name of Joe Barboza, who was uh, a notorious hood here in Boston. He was from New Bedford. He was a hitman for the mob, and he was sort of the precursor to Bulger in the sense that the FBI reached out to him and formed a relationship with him, and he became an informant for the FBI. And so did a whole bunch of criminals of that era, including Steve Flemmy, Whitey Bulger's partner. Yep. Steve Flemmy was an informant mm-hmm. long before Whitey Bulger was. Steve Flor- Flemmy's brother, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, was a top echelon informant. So these relationships were actually something that Bulger inherited. They were established back in the 60s when, when Whitey was away in prison. And it laid the groundwork for everything that came later. Among the uh, scandalous events of that era were the fact that Joe Barboza, in one trial in 1967, in a murder trial, a low-level hood named Teddy Deegan was murdered. And at that trial, Joe Barboza took the stand and fingered four innocent men for a crime they didn't commit, including Joe Salvati. This is a well-known story here in Boston. Mm -hmm. It took us four decades to find out this had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've since learned that it was it was enabled and orchestrated by the FBI agents and by the FBI all the way up to J. Edgar Hoover. <clears throat> so this type of institutional corruption, systemic corruption surrounding the issue of this relationship between gangsters and lawmen was something that was in place from that point onward. And the framing of innocent people for a crime they didn't commit became the dirty little secret of this jurisdiction for many years to come. And it was it was known by some that that had happened. A gangster named Vinnie Teresa wrote a book back in 1970 or 71, and he said in that book that everybody that was in prison knew that those guys had been framed for a murder they didn't do. So this was sort of, this was sort of known, as I say, the dirty little secret. And keeping that information repressed, keeping that buried, was part of the modus operandi of uh, the system from that point onward. So these are all sort of things that Whitey Bulger became an inheritor of. And, And when people say Whitey Bulger corrupted the criminal justice system in Boston, I say, I don't think so. I think he plugged into a pre-existing corrupt system and played it for all it was worth. Mm -hmm. So how did you become so interested or well, why did you become so interested? Well, I write. Well, a, I guess both how and why. Right, I write a lot about crime, a lot organized crime in mm-hmm. particular. I write about crime that is connected to politics, connected to the social apparatus. It's kind of social history from the point of view of the criminal world. You know, I think that's a very in the United States of America that's a very interesting way of looking at things because. There's so much of that type of criminal activity in the United States, and there always has been. Um, So it's a window into a certain way that the country operates. And I've written about uh, old school gangsters like Irish and Italian and and Jewish, but I've also done journalism about Jamaicans and, and the narco war in Mexico. And I wrote a book about a Vietnamese gang in Chinatown in New York. So I come at it from a lot of different angles. Um, the what I- makes these criminals criminals? 
Uh, it has to do with wanting to uh, power get over. You know, a lot of it is um, just money. It's an extension of the capitalist system. Most you think gangsters, it's money, or you think it's power? Well, most gangsters think of themselves as businessmen. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it is a bit. Yeah, they, that's and they Kevin think, Weeks and they think they operate in the world. Yeah. yeah, it was a business. And they operate in the world of business, mm-hmm. and they they just do it in a way where they get to take matters into their own hands in a way that uh, legitimate citizens don't. And that, and that, by the way, I think is part of the reason people are so fascinated by mob movies and 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 mob stories because they get a vicarious, they get a kind of vicarious, vicarious, yeah, through, like if they right. have the courage. You know, um, I was um, on my way to the opening of the movie um, the other night, and um, I never did make it. There was so much traffic. You just you could. <laughs> I, I got a late start anyway. To the opening, so but um, there was just so much traffic; it was just like a big cluster mess. I mean, you just there was no way that. And as I was driving there, um, and then of course I had no idea where I was. I, in the moment that I decided to hit my navigation bar and find my way back home, I had to ask myself, what is the fascination with you know? I mean, because there was a part of me certainly that was you know sort of fascinated with it all, and and you know, well, I don't know if I want to miss this and. And I, then I started to ask myself, well, what is it that you, you're really missing? You know, and, and why is this important? And forget about me just for a moment anyway. What about all the people? I mean, it was just the the big rage. I guess when I turned on the, the TV in the morning, I probably, because I'm sure it was on the air. I mean, you know, I'm sure it was on TV and I just missed it. But, um, of course, I'm sure that was there was all the talk about the, the opening. But you know, I mean, closing off streets and bringing Hollywood to to Boston, and and what do you what do you make of that? Well, um, you know, a lot of the fascination with the personalities that are involved in or, in crime and and the and the gangsters in particular, organized crime, I think is is misplaced. Um, I usually come to these stories because the story of Bolger. And, and and his years in power and everything about his story is is a fascinating story in terms of how the system operates or doesn't operate, how the system gets manipulated and why it gets manipulated. And, and that's your main interest. Well, it should be everyone's main interest because right. it's culturally and socially explains a lot about who we are and it penetrates through certain hypocrisies about what we say and what we really are and all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's historically relevant. But people get caught up in the surface part of it, the uh, the thrill of it, the, glitz, the, the sensationalism glitter, right? of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's misguided. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that the movie's out and now... A little early, a little well, soon, don't you think? Well... Or do you think? I'm not sure that matters personally, but what what bothers me is that we should, if we're going to have a conversation about Bolger, and I do think there's plenty left to talk about, uh, to me the most useful question to ask is, you know, why? How did he get into that position? How did it happen? And how do we make sure it never happens again? Instead, what we're going to be talking about is how authentic Johnny Depp's Boston accent is. You know, we're going to be talking about trivia in relation to Bolger instead of the serious issues in relation to Bolger. And that's a problem, I think. And what did he say? We talked about it a little bit before the interview uh, um, when he was on TV, um, something about he wasn't an evil man. Well, I think they asked Johnny Depp a question about Bolger and whether they thought they thought he was evil. And his answer was something along the lines of I 
I don't play it that way. To me, he's a human being. I don't think he was evil. What, what do you What do you make of that? Well, answer? I would. What I would say to that is, is if he was evil, and he maybe very well was, but I'm not the one who makes that moral judgment. But um, if he was evil, what do we say about the government people who enabled this guy and made it possible for him to kill people while he was a criminal out on the street? Exactly. What do we say about the system that enabled that if he was evil? What does that say about all the so-called good guys, quote unquote? Well, the good guys are not good guys. Right. I mean, if you're you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Well, old, but, know, but look expression. at the Bolger story. Who was held accountable for Bolger? One guy, John Connolly, Bolger's handler, is away in prison. Was anyone else held responsible? No. And the Bolger relationship went all the way up to the chain of command to the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. There's a moment in the Bolger story where, where the Bolger crew had killed four people in a matter of about 18 months uh, in the wake of the World High Lie mm-hmm. uh, operation right. that they yeah. were controlling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these murders were... Uh, of of legitimate business people, a couple of them. And so it started to bring down a level of attention on on Bolger's operation. And so uh, the FBI and the DOJ were, were had to have a summit meeting in Washington, D.C. about this. What do we do about the fact that our informants are being implicated in these murder investigations? You'd think they would be ethically or morally concerned about that, right? What they were concerned about was how do we protect our assets? Of course, right. Exactly. That was in Washington, D.C. So what I'm saying is is the Bolger relationship was overseen and enabled throughout the criminal justice system by a lot of people, some directly, some indirectly. And we've never, ever had a full accounting for that publicly. And that's part of what was frustrating to me about the trial because I had hoped that the trial would be some version of that, and it wasn't. How did you see the trial? I saw the trial as a continuing, part of a continuing cover-up, a a way to manage the narrative so that it was all about this one psychopathic criminal who did all these horrible acts instead of how did this psychopathic criminal get into this position of power uh, within the system. And so at the trial, any time... Joe Barboza's name was mentioned. Anytime Joe Salvati's name was mentioned, there was an objection from the prosecutors. And the judge affirmed the, the objection. <laughs> so the context, the historical context that created Whitey Bulger was kept out of that trial. So did you, you think Whitey received a fair trial? I think he received a fair trial. I think he deserved everything he got. Uh, he got two life sentences plus 75 years. I think he, he deserved well, it. Well, do you think he's going to live that long? Uh, <laughs> You yeah. know, he's just ornery enough to do it. Yeah, uh, no if kidding. If he's evil, they say evil lasts a long time. But um, it, it was funny, it's something that you said earlier in the interview, that you, it wasn't for you to decide if he were evil or not. No. Um, so do you have an opinion about him? I sometimes have opinions, but here's the thing. If you're going to be a writer who writes about criminals, gangsters, uh, you have to be able to do it without judgment. You're going to be interviewing people, hopefully. I mean, I try to tell the story from the inside out um, and and get to know and interview people who are in that life, you know, and that's, to me, the only way you're really ever going to understand it. And if those people are going to talk to you or you're going to expect those people to talk to you, you have to be able to approach it without moral judgment. Kind of like a therapist in a way. 
perhaps, perhaps. I mean, I'm not trying to cure them. Well, no, but, but I am I, trying but coming from that place of more curiosity, right. Rather than than judgment and yes, and just being open to hearing and listening and and yeah, interpreting. Let them hang themselves if that's what's going to happen, mm-hmm. you know, or let them reveal themselves or let themselves try to get some deeper explanation of why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's my job and obligation as a writer, mm-hmm. and, and it does no good for me to bring my personal. Uh, my personal judgments about about it to the situation. Do you have any? Yeah, I have some, sure. Do you want to share those? Uh, well, about what in particular? Um, I mean, I was raised a Catholic. I, I, I have a, a moral sense of the universe mm-hmm. and Obviously. Uh, hope that the work that I write reveals that. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you feel that you're more the exception rather than the norm? And, and I mean, just the way the whole society. Well, I'll say this just in terms of the work that I do and and the, and the product of the work that I do. I write books that are any subject that I've written about. I wrote a book about the years of the of the mob in Havana, Cuba, in the 1950s before the, the Cuban Revolution. I wrote a book about called "The Savage City" about a period of hostility between the NYPD and the Black Liberation Movement in New York City in the 60s and early 70s. All of these books um, that I write, I wrote a book called The Westies about the last yes. of the Irish mob in mm-hmm. New York City. Um, I try to I try to bring sociology. Uh, I try to write them on a large social canvas. I try to write about these subjects. I try to go beyond the sensationalism that is so often applied to these crime stories and present them in a larger canvas that will... Uh, educate people, yeah, enlighten, open, people. enlighten people, yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, a deeper level of knowledge on these subjects. And I believe that all of that comes from a, from a, from a moral uh, sense of obligation. Do you ever think that people will stop sort of almost rewarding infamy? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, you become a criminal, you end up on the big screen. I mean, do you think how, how and it's certainly the, the amount of people that attend these these movie screenings well, we can't, are indicative of... We can't regulate what people are fascinated by, you know, and if that's where well, we're sort at. Of like, you know... If well, that's where we're at as a culture, it's an, it's an accurate reflection of where we're at. Well, it's sort of like everyone uh, loves a good train wreck, you know? I mean, right. You, you, uh, there's actually a book written with that very name. Right. Um, I'm sure that's what reality TV is all about. It's based yeah, on... Yeah, I mean, it might be something a little different to... To why someone stops, and I, I don't know, that's kind of an interesting name. Everyone loves a, a, a good train wreck. I'm not so sure that people love that, but, you know, there's there's a whole other element of, you know, that it's not us, and it could be us, and, right. and um, you know, where we are in our own lives. So that may be a little bit different, but as a culture, I mean, we, we do love this stuff. I mean, we... Uh, we do. And what is it that is making... I mean, how can we possibly... Like, this guy has been rewarded. Whitey's been rewarded for being for killing people. And well, how is he being rewarded? He's not being rewarded. Maybe he's being re- rewarded in the sense that his public reputation and profile is being exalted to a certain level that we maybe think that doesn't deserve to be exalted to. 
Well, um, that's true. I mean, he is in jail. So, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, I mean, the guy's how old? What, 80-something? 85. Yeah, he's 85 years old. You know, probably doesn't have too much longer to live. And, right. And he's been free up until the past couple of years. Yeah, no, listen, I hear you. I, I think I think the, the fascination with the personality of Whitey Bulger is, is a little bit obscene. Um, I think that's a really good word for it. Yeah, yeah. particularly yeah. because there's so much we need to know and learn about that story. Um, you know, as we sit here right now, there are agents and cops everywhere engaging in the same type of relationship that they had with Whitey Bulger. Nothing has changed. Yeah. Nothing has changed. We haven't we haven't used the Bulger story to examine the system and bring about some kind of self-knowledge and reform. So, you know, in the war on terror, in the narco war in Mexico, the use of informants, I don't know, meth dealers somewhere in the Midwest, and they're trying to penetrate that organization. They're using informants. They're forming relationships with informants that exist in this gray area in which uh, the government is sanctioning criminals to go out and commit crimes and kill people. And I don't want that done in my name. And if it's being done in my name, I want to know about it. Mm -hmm. And I want to have the opportunity to have it exposed. And we're missing that opportunity here. Um, we're just going to take a short break, but um, I would love um, to find out more about your research and investigation when we come back. You're, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm speaking with T.J. English, who has written a book, Where the Bodies Were Buried. Is that, is that actually right? Is that Where the Bodies Were Buried? That is good. That's okay, correct. Okay, good. Sorry. And um, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723. 6733 or visit us at Caitlin Rose has a fascination for finding ways to capture specific moments in life. She feels still photography does something that no other medium can, capturing a single moment that tells a story and allowing us to have the full recollection of every moment that came before and after. Caitlin's style allows for a totally natural experience. Every day, Caitlin Rose is invited to share in the significant moments in people's lives and trusted to preserve the memory. So call Caitlin Rose Photography today at 339-203-5030 or visit online at katerosephoto.com. That's C-A-T-E rosephoto.com. As one of the most experienced fencing companies for over 45 years, J.C. Fence has been installing fences along the North Shore. Their superior reputation has been built on providing a quality product along with professional services. Reasonably priced, they provide a guarantee that they stand by. To make sure your fencing project is installed on time and on budget, call J.C. Fence today at 978-681-0021 or visit their showroom at 2370 Turnpike Street in North Andover. I did and I couldn't be happier. I personally endorse them because I want you to have the best experience possible. So don't wait. Call J.C. Fence today at 978-681-0021. New England winters can wreak havoc on our vehicles. Sometimes it's just not enough to wash and vacuum them. Sometimes a full detail is in order. 
Do you remember the last time your car or truck was in that pristine condition? Remember how you felt? It's time to get that feeling back again. A full detailing from Tony's Recon can get you back in the driver's seat. Call Tony at 978-590-3693 or visit Tony'sRecon.com. You'll be glad you did. Are you having problems getting reimbursed for your medical bills? Wise up and call Medwise, the master insurance advocates. Medwise owner Adria Goldman-Gross is nationally recognized as the expert in the field with more than 25 years experience. If you've been denied insurance claims or if you had issues recovering money from your insurance company, Adria at Medwise may be able to help. Call 559-MEDWISE. If you've been overcharged for medical services or just getting a runaround, Medwise can put a stop to it. Call 559-MEDWISE or go to medwise.nyc. That's M-E-D-Wise.nyc. Maybe you've laid out thousands of dollars for medical services, and now the insurance company or the government is refusing to reimburse you, or the process is just dragging on. Medwise will straighten them out and get things moving. When you call your insurance company, you get nowhere. When Adria from Medwise calls, they shiver. Go to medwise.nyc or call 559-MEDWISE. Just say, Adria, I need help and get results. Where does your dog stay when you go away? Pause here. That's where. Conveniently located right behind Market Basket in Revere on Route 60. At Pause Here, your dog will feel right at home. Pause Here is a cageless doggy care, boarding, and training facility open 365 days a year. Paws Here is a premier dog destination with a large indoor and outdoor area, pools, and beds. So whether you want a day off, a week, or regular doggy daycare, call 781-286-PAWS or visit PawsHereInc.com. One word of caution, your dog may expect the royal treatment when they get home. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare, and it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. Welcome back to the program. You're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm here live, loud, and local with T.J. English, who has written a book, Where the Bodies Were Buried. Welcome back, T.J. Thank you. So why did you name your book, Where the Bodies Were Buried? Well, one of the, one of the more depressing aspects of the Bulger saga to me was, was when they started digging up the bodies. Ugh. Yeah, in the late 90s and into the 2000s when kind of creepy. Bulger had gone on the run and... Um, Steve Fleming and Kevin Weeks and started the, some of the others started coming forward and, and identifying where these bodies were buried and it was a grim grim time for the city I think because it was sort of a realization of everybody's worst uh, expectations of what the Bulger ears were all about and so here you were literally digging up I think it was a total of seven bodies over the course of a few weeks um so it was that, and it was also because I had a number of sources for this story. Anyone who reads the book will see that I 
I dealt uh, quite a bit with uh, Kevin Weeks and with Patney and some of the Southie crew who I had gotten to know doing research for a previous book, Patty Whack. Mm. And, and um, you met them. And met them and interviewed them a lot. And and, and, and they were willing to, to let you interview them. Eventually, yeah. Um, Kevin Weeks has written several books. They've both written books. We, Weeks and Nia both published books. So they haven't exactly been hiding about it. You know, none, none of these people have. Um, well, I, th- I believe Kevin Weeks gives at least a portion of the proceeds of his books to the he, victims of he, the family. He has to. That was a legal accommodation, uh-huh. I think. Um, uh-huh. Yes. Um, and plus, I think they... they they have an interest in getting this, having the story be told accurately. You know, the, the the Bulger story implicates a lot of people around him in in ways that they wanted to make clear. You know, they didn't know he was an informant either. No. So a lot no. of them felt betrayed and felt they were set up to be taken down. Well, Kevin was the, uh, no, Whitey was Kevin Weeks's, one of his ch- uh, children's godfather. Yeah, sure. Um, this just seems so strange. So anyway, you know, it's like they're out murdering people by day and and christening, or murdering people by night, christening people yeah. by day, children by day. There's something yep. about it is a little. Well, the bodies. As to the point of the bodies, yeah. you know, three bodies were buried in the basement of a house on Third Street in Southie uh, that belonged to the brother of Patney, and Bulger had sort of taken over that house and decided it would be a good place to murder people and bury the bodies in the basement. And so that I deal with in the book quite a bit, take Patney back to that home. That How was, do they bury people in a basement without there being like a horrendous smell? I'm not sure you want all the details of that. It has to do with the use of lye, which is a decomposing agent, and also another agent that's, that's used to absorb the smell. Well, these are brilliant men, weren't they? Well, Steve Fleming, practically, they... they well, he loved to kill. They gave him the nickname Mengele, Dr. Mengele. Well, he just they, loved it. Well, he had a fascination with it, definitely. Yeah, he, what was that about? Well, he was like a serial killer, really. I mean, you're talking about a guy who he admitted to 11 murders, but in, in, in Fleming's case, I'm sure there's many more. Yeah, he was a real... Well, they're all nuts, but, yeah. you know. But uh, he was he was in another category a little bit. Uh, yeah, even from the from the um, perspective of like Kevin Weeks. Yeah, he was having a sexual relationship with one of his with his niece, who they also no sorry not his niece his stepdaughter, with his stepdaughter who they eventually murdered. She's one of the ones they murdered and buried in the basement of that house. I mean, it's an unseemly and, and gruesome the details of the of the Bulger story. But again. Mm. Not to get off on that, the, the the fact that these guys were doing this while they were being protected by the U.S. government. And, and why would the U.S. I, government protect them? Well, because they, number one, they believed they were getting information to make cases against the mafia. That's sort of the standard explanation for why they were doing it. But I think they were also doing it because when you entered into a relationship with these gangsters, Fleming and Bolger... They all became custodians of the sturdy history going back to the Barboza era, mm-hmm. the fingering of innocent people, that relationship that was that they inherited that was handing off to them. So that's where they sort of became partners in what I call a conspiracy to, you know, not only make cases against the mafia, but to keep buried certain things that have to remain buried or it would destroy the credibility of the criminal justice system. Like, what? like the framing of four innocent people for a murder they didn't commit. 
and the fact that two of them died while they were in prison. And and two of them were facing a death penalty that was later overturned. Joe Salvati, who I opened the book with an interview with Joe Salvati, spent 30 years in prison. How tragic. For a murder he didn't commit. A guy who was not a criminal, a good family man with kid, with children. Um, and the and the government was a party to that. And so they didn't and want they that. Knew they that knew was going on. Not only they knew it was going on, they didn't want it known that they knew it was going on. They spent the next 40 years. Joe Salvati's lawyers would try to get documents to get him out because he was innocent and they wanted to prove it. And the government would not cooperate. They would not give up documents. They would fight them at every turn. The government was keeping it buried. So I'm having trouble understanding why the government would be keeping this buried. If that became known, that that, that that happened and that there was that level of acquiescence in it happening, mm-hmm. can you imagine what, that's, what a devastating scandal that, that would be? How it would destroy any kind of faith in the local criminal justice system? But why did, was the government covering it, is what I'm saying? Or well, J. Edgar Hoover, then you get into J. Edgar Hoover and his desire to make to burnish his reputation by making cases against the mafia. J. Edgar Hoover had denied there was a mafia. And then all of a sudden in the early... Why? Uh, there's a lot of... There's a, you're, <laughs> now you're, now you're, you're getting, asking a lot of whys. I uh, am. Because uh, now I'm really going... Oh. Hoover's reputation was made on fighting communists mm-hmm. ever since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. When there started to be things written about that there was this thing called the mafia and that there was a ruling body mafia five families in the united states and everything he denied it he said it didn't exist he said it publicly for a long period of time and then bobby kennedy as attorney general put a guy named uh joe valachi on the stand on live television to testify and valachi was a mafiosi from new york and it captivated the public. Talking about captivating the public, Valachi was sort of the first of this type of mafiosi the public had ever heard. Mm-hmm. And the public was riveted by it. And now here was J. Edgar Hoover, who had been denying there ever was a, ma- a mafia, and now it had been laid bare that there was in a very, and detailed by Valachi in a very public way. J. Edgar Hoover had a lot of catching up to do. He instituted, in the wake of that, he instituted this top echelon informant program. And he said, I want you to go out and get me my Joe Valachi. I want you to go out and get the worst kind of criminals you can get. And we're going to use them to take down organized crime from within. That was the policy that was created. And it was encouraged, tacitly encouraged, that agents go out and do the kind of things that John Connolly ultimately did to forge relationships to do it by any means necessary, uh, to just make sure that you cover for it in the documentation and the, in the public record. And this began a, a process, uh, I believe, a, a, a wholly corrupt process that emo- eventually made Whitey Bulger not only possible, but inevitable. So what was your investigation and research process like? Well, it was interesting because the trial, you know, sort of formed the narrative thread of the book, uh, following the trial on a daily basis and capturing the flavor of that and giving a sense of the testimony. But as I was saying before, I came to the conclusion that there was so much about this story that wasn't being told at the trial. Then the sort of research mandate became to go out and get all the information that isn't in the trial. 
uh, to go find, if they're not going to allow people to even talk about Joe Salvati in the courtroom, then go out and find Joe Salvati and interview Joe Salvati. Um, sit down with um, uh, criminal defense attorney Tony Cardinale, who's always been a great source for me here in town, is very knowledgeable on all levels of this story, to go to Tony in the North End, sitting at Cafe Pompeii on Hanover Street, mm-hmm. and say, Tony, tell me about the Angelos. Tell me, what did they, how did they feel about Whitey Bulger? And tell me this, tell how me did that. They? Oh, they despised him. Yeah. They thought he was a lowlife. I mean, when I asked Tony, why didn't these guys know that Fleming and Bolger were informants? He said they never would have believed that the government would be in bed with such lowlifes. Um, so, so the research became to flesh out the aspects of the story that weren't being told in the, in the trial. So have you changed your opinion about the way our federal laws and criminal policies are set up and enforced? Yeah, this story is devastating to anyone's belief in the system what happened here. I mean, it's, I've been covering it for years, and I'm still shocked by it. And do you think that, um, that more or less people really understand it on the level that you do? I think in some ways people don't want to know. Well, that's what I was thinking. They don't want to know. You know, John Connolly, I interviewed when he was in, from prison. He's in prison, and uh, he said something that always stuck with me. He said, people don't want to know how the sausage is made. And what he meant was cases. They want case, case, they want convictions, and they want cases to be made. They don't want to know how they're made. And it's true. Imagine the war on terror. People want these terrorists taken down. Don't tell me how it's done. I don't want to know. I just want you to take them out. And so there's a lot of that mm-hmm. within the system. And if, if people are in a state of mind where they don't want to know, all kinds of horrible things Why do happen. you think that is the case, that people don't really want to know? I, I mean, get, I think that's, a, in general, people don't really, they, so I think a lot of people don't want to know lots of things. So you can say, you can't, bl- you can't blame me. It's so they can say, you can't blame me. I didn't know. How was I to know? A lot of people have, that's been the defense of a lot of people in the government in the wake of this Bolger fiasco. Uh, U.S. attorneys, prosecutors, people who should have known will say, I didn't know. How do you expect me to know? I didn't know. I mean, so on a completely different note, I've always been a little bit fascinated, and I'm just curious um, what you might think about Catherine Gregg. Like, what would, uh, why would, I mean, she was an intelligent woman. I think she was a dental hygienist, um, you know, an attractive woman. And, I mean, she wasn't even his, Whitey's first choice. And, you know, she would have just done anything and did do anything for him. Mm. And, you know, do, do you think it was selfish? Is she, was she a twin? Yes. Yeah. I mean, she would have done, not that that necessarily means anything, but what, she would have done anything and, as I said, did do just about everything for right. him. What do you make of that? Well, before, Catherine, I can speak a little more clearly about Teresa Stanley, who okay. I, inter- who I interviewed n- numerous times. Oh, okay, and fine. and yeah. the book is dedicated to Teresa Stanley. She passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I found her to be very sympathetic. Sympathetic to who? Well, I had sympathy for her predicament. Here, here's here's Teresa's story. She was a 26 year old woman with four children, very attractive. When when she met Jim Bolger, and he wasn't whitey yet. This is somewhere around 1965. You know, he just got out of prison recently. She knew he was some version of a criminal, but he was who he was. He was a charismatic guy, attractive, uh, had a certain swagger, had characteristics that were attractive. 
uh, it, to Polished people. Polished businessman. No, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what she was looking for. She was looking for a provider, I think. And he was that. Well, he was a businessman. So he set her. So he set her up in a domestic situation, and he was pretty diligent about taking care of her for the next 30 years. He was a father to her children. He walked a couple of them down the aisle when they got married. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting. She was having problems with it. She, she, he was a very controlling guy with a hair-trigger temper. He never physically abused her, but he was very controlling and intimidating, and I think she was almost, it was almost like a Stockholm Syndrome-type relationship. She was captive. Uh-huh. Um, she finds out about, she finds, she told me an re- amazing story about getting a call one night from a woman that says, uh, I think we should talk, I want to talk about your boyfriend, Jim Bulger. And who was that? It Walter? was Catherine Gray. Oh, okay. So she goes to see this woman and the woman identifies herself and says, I've been, I'm Whitey's girlfriend. And, and Teresa, Catherine to Teresa. Yeah. And Teresa said, well, I knew he p- probably had women on the side. And so she said, how long have you been? His girlfriend, she was thinking, you know, months, maybe years. And Catherine said, 20 years. <gasps> and Teresa was like kicked, like she was kicked in the stomach. She was stunned. And so Whitey had had these two separate but, domestic but, but, Why lunch. would she have been stunned if, if she... 20 years. Yeah, but... She so... was living in a house. Uh, she was almost living as a, as a parallel uh, common-law wife. Right. I don't. I think that was sort of beyond. But 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 she thought affairs were okay. Is that what you're saying? Or... What? So, but she thought affairs were okay. Um, I think she would. I don't think she thought they were okay. But I think she wouldn't have been surprised by that, because these guys were out a lot. Right. Um, there were women around. They had groupies. Right. Ga- gangsters. Exactly. Gangsters, gangsters have, have groupies. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, so she, she thought maybe there's some younger, hotter yeah, groupie yeah. that he yeah, had, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I guess within the situation she'd created with him, that she was willing, maybe to make room for that, but not for someone he'd been living with for 20 years. Or living with her and her. Yeah. Yeah. So so, so Teresa felt betrayed. Yeah. That was sort of the last straw. And originally she was supposed to go on the run with Bulger right. and she went on the run with Bulger and they were out on the road right. and Teresa realized I can't do this. Teresa had four Good for children. <laughs> she said, I got to go back. So yeah. uh, Whitey took her back and traded her in for, for the younger model. Well, that's exactly the point. <laughs> Catherine. And, and now, Catherine knew she was now, she yeah. was used goods, or she was she was a second fiddle there. Yeah, right? Catherine's a, Catherine's never talked to anyone. Did she ever talk to you? No, oh. Catherine. Well, she was in the midst of a legal fight for her life at that at the point I was doing this book. I mean, right. she's in prison now. Right. I think she got an eight year sentence for for aiding and abetting a fugitive. Yes. Her story's a lot more curious. This is a woman who was a professional woman who kind of had a life of her own right. going when she right. met Bolger. She didn't need Bolger. Nope. She had a career. She was taking care of herself. And yet she came under the thrall of this guy. She knew that Whitey had this other woman, Teresa, and yet she was willing to take this second banana roll, All although right. I'm sure in her mind she thought she was first banana and Teresa was second banana. Um, that's probably what Whitey told her. Yeah. Um, well, he didn't have problem lying. <laughs> no. God, that guy had layers of deception in his life. I mean, just think about it. He's got two domestic situations going, lying to both parties about it. How do we keep up he's with an all inform- the lies? He's an informant for yeah. the FBI that yeah. nobody knows about. Plus, he's, he's, he's a gangster, which is a very secretive life exactly. to begin with. 
just talking about That's more stress than I would want. (laughs) Which most people would want. But I think he probably got off on it in some way. Obviously, it it fueled him in some way. Well, maybe he's a deeply insecure man. Oh, I'm sure. The flip side of of the kind of uh, bullying so-called confidence that he had is insecurity. No question about it. Uh, An insecure man sometimes is a dangerous man. Oh, absolutely. Um, but why did Catherine stay with him? She goes on the run with this guy, so now she's in a one-on-one. Now, everything I heard about Whitey from his, from Teresa and from all his associates, and he was, he was a controlling guy who was full of himself. You would not want to be on a one-on-one relationship with him, just the two of you on the run for 16 years. In fact, most people I know, when there was a debate about how how culpable Catherine was, all of Whitey's Associates, even the ones who liked him, said, look, she's done her time. She did 16 years alone with Jim Bulger, you know, in small rooms and everything. That must have been horrible. Oh, no kidding. Um, And it's so strange that they ended up finding them right in the States. I mean, that's that's another strange. Well, his his theory was hide in plain sight. That's was, you know, he's kind of an anonymous looking guy. He's sort of a generic looking guy, not any big characteristics that would, you know, big uh, nose, big ears where you could he, 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 he easily could meld into a crowd. Do you think that or the, do you think that they just didn't want to find him? Well, I think initially they didn't want to find him. Certainly the first few years that he was out on the run. I mean, they assigned when he first disappeared, the FBI assigned the organized crime unit that he had corrupted as the unit that was in charge of finding him. <laughs> you think they wanted to find him? No, they didn't want to find him. So the, tri- the trail went dry during some crucial years when they should have been looking for him. Eventually, the U.S. Marshals were brought in, mm-hmm. and that's how they found him. So, okay, so we, but we were talking about Catherine and kind of veered off there for a second. So, so what, what now she's in, in jail, and I mean, think she has any regrets? I mean, just didn't, wasn't there an art? Um, didn't some kids write to Whitey? And didn't he write back to them, like, live your life in a different way, a better way? See, or? now we're off on the Whitey trivia because, <laughs> see, what Whitey does, and he's been doing very strategically since he was apprehended, he writes these letters to people knowing that they're going to go they're going to go to the media. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some of them he's encouraged them to take the letters to the media. So Whitey is disseminating information to the media in a way that we can't ask him questions. He hasn't done an interview. He wouldn't sit down with somebody like me that's going to ask him real questions. So but he's controlling his image his public image by writing these letters that he knows are going to wind up in the public and he's been doing that quite a bit. What would make someone so obsessed with control that way? Oh, boy, that's I know, that's, that's a, maybe above my pay grade. That's a Freud question, <laughs> <laughs> right? But, I mean, really, what on earth would make someone so obsessed? Well, the armchair psychologist's explanation about him um, is that, you know, his father had a mis- lost an arm in an accident very early in life and, and became unable to... Uh, take care of his family and Jim Bolger was the oldest uh-huh. and that he somehow uh, took on uh, the psychology of that and said I'm never he saw his father in such a, a state of weakness and humiliation that he wasn't able to take care of his family uh. and that Jim Bolger was driven by some desire that that would never happen to him 
Well, that's the psychological that may, thing that people use. That wouldn't that wouldn't explain that he would go to such extremes as murdering people. And well, initially he became a bank robber. That's what he was. He first, as his oh. criminal life, he started robbing the back of trucks, and then he, by the time he was eighteen, nineteen, he was robbing banks. So it was very much about direct access to money. Uh, that was his, you know, he him becoming the guy he became. It took it took many years for Jim Bolger to become Whitey Bolger, and and this is what I'm trying to say. The government had a lot to do do with that. Huh. Well, this is all very fascinating. Um, I'm speaking with T.J. English, who has written the book "Where the Bodies Were Buried." Is there anything um, else that you'd like to tell our listening audience before we say goodbye that, that you think is important for them to, to know or that you... Well, there's one last little thing I want to say to Boston, to Boston listeners, and that is, uh, you know, and to an extent, I think Southie has kind of gotten a bad rap in this, and I'll explain why. First of all, Jim Bolger was enabled as much by the U.S. government as he ever was by the neighborhood of Southie. So if we're going to look at how Bolger acquired his power within the criminal underworld. That's a point that needs to be made. The other thing is, Bolger rose as a gangster as the head of the Winter Hill Mob, which mm-hmm. was based in Somerville. Yep. It was not a Southie story. Right. Yes, Southie has a criminal underworld structure, just as the North End does, just as Somerville did, just as many neighborhoods in Boston had mm-hmm. in the decades of the 40s, 50s, 60s. In, in, into the 70s. So I think just as the fascination or obsession with the personality of the cult of Bolger takes us down the wrong road sometimes, I also think that the obsession that Southie somehow was the fertile ground that created Jim Bolger takes us down the wrong road. So I, I just want to make that point. Thank you. All right. Well, TJ, thank you so much for being on Talk with Francesca. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay. Okay. It's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the show. Love to hear from you with questions or comments. Remember the website's talkwithfrancesca.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Caitlin Rose has a fascination for finding ways to capture specific moments in life. She feels still photography does something that no other medium can. Capturing a single moment that tells a story and allowing us to have the full recollection of every moment that came before and after, Caitlin's style allows for a totally natural experience. Every day, Caitlin Rose is invited to share in the significant moments in people's lives and trusted to preserve the memory. So call Caitlin Rose Photography today at 339-203-5030 or visit online at katerosephoto.com. That's C-A-T-E, rosephoto.com.